Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at Swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. And today, before we get started, I have a bug of the week. It's been a a while since we've done this, but I just finished converting the PlanGrid codebase to Swift 4 and ran into some pretty obscure errors uh, in the process. So uh, the migrator didn't work so well for me. I had to manually add uh, at obc to some five or 600 uh, spots in our Swift code. It was basically just building and running and just letting things uh, or just constant command B to uh, find those uh, where Objective-C couldn't see those symbols. Once everything was compiling, I was like, all right, this is great. Good to go. Ran the app, did like a smoke test. Seem fine, and luckily we have a pretty good suite of UI tests. And so then CI started failing. And looking into those failing tests, uh, stepping through like what the UI tests are doing, found a couple of situations that the compiler missed uh, where we needed those at obc annotations for some views that were being constructed programmatically. Uh, we had a label subclass that was being used somewhere. And so I got, you know, the typical does not respond to selector error. So that was like pretty quick and easy to fix. And then I started getting uh, in this other area in the final test, this underscore swift value underscore get value for something. And it was just crashing and there's pretty much no stack trace. So is this an assertion failure? Yeah, it was not an assertion failure. Um, it was just crashing. And the, or I guess it was an assertion. The de- debugger output underscore swift value uh, underscore get value for type. Unrecognized selector sent to instance. Mm, I think that's uh, some reflection yes. code, right? Yeah. And so uh, this was, yeah, I guess somewhere in the bridging trying to figure out what this like swift value this swift type was supposed to be when bridging over to objective c so it was a pretty tricky thing to track down because this particular view would add this button only under certain scenarios if our users have different permissions on projects and so only certain users would see this label uh so it's pretty difficult to reproduce but Uh, what it turned out to be was an attributed string that we were building for this button. And in that dictionary for the attributed string, you know, you have like your keys and values like for the font or the color, whatever. We were adding the underline style and using the raw Swift enum. And the fix was to call dot raw value on that enum. In the dictionary, um, no compiler errors, nothing like everything was fine, and uh, yeah, it took me a while yeah. to like try. It seems very simple now in hindsight, but 
uh, it was very difficult to find. Well, that's uh, the limitations of static analysis. Mm-hmm. It means that it can't catch things that are type erased, uh, like this any key dic- or any value dictionary yep. uh, saying, yes, whatever you threw in there uh, is valid for this type signature. Um, but that's where you know, static analysis fails. And really, this is what we used to have in Objective-C. You know, you could pass in anything for this value in your dictionary, um, and you'd only be able to catch it at runtime as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess this is even more of a push for uh, having type-safe interfaces. And we've they've come some way for this, even with these like dictionary-typed APIs where all of the keys are an enum now, and you can... Mm-hmm. Uh, Oftentimes, those APIs have been adapted so that they take a dictionary of enum dictionary key, but still any value because you need a polymorphic or or a non-heterogeneous set of values. Right. Um, Yeah, so we need to go further in that direction so the compiler can actually help us in all cases. Yeah. The difference here, though, is that if you made some mistake like this in Objective-C, you wouldn't be crashing, though. You might get some weird output for your attributed string, right? Like whatever the... Uh, well, I guess it kind of depends, right? Because it'd call int value on that, right? whatever that is. Yeah, like if, if but, you pass something that wasn't a font to like the font key, then you'd probably get a crash. Yes, that's true. Yeah. But a lot of things actually implement int value, inc- yeah. including strings, so... right. Yeah, strings so, and its number. Yeah. Uh, so maybe, yeah, maybe you wouldn't have gotten a crash, uh, or maybe you would have gotten a crash in Objective C, depending on the scenario. Yeah, I'd rather a crash than kind of potentially not well defined behavior. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's well defined, but not uh, uh, intuitively defined. Right. However. Uh, if we didn't have these UI tests, we probably wouldn't have caught this because it was such an obscure thing, uh, which means it probably would have shipped. And then the way this thing manifested uh, in for the, the user experience, it would have been awful. And we would have had to you know, like push a hotfix to the App Store for sure if this had shipped. Right. So uh, I guess... Yay for UI tests. Yay for tests. Yeah. Well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you caught that. Um, has the Swift 4 version of your app shipped to the store yet? No, but it will soon. Yeah. Right. And uh, so far, it, it seems like things are um, a little bit faster. Uh, I haven't measured anything yet, but I might try doing that on a weekend uh, for fun, you know, as one does. <laughs> On weekends. <laughs> well, I hope you have a nice weekend. Um, <laughs> now, we wanted to touch on um, on uh, on a different topic this week, on something that I discussed uh, about a month ago by the time this goes live at French Kit in Paris. Uh, so I gave a talk on performance profiling Swift on Linux, um, which as more and more of you uh, write, server-side code using Swift, or try to anyway, uh, depending on the maturity of that ecosystem, um, it's something that uh, that you might run into. And this is something that I ran into as I was um, 
working on getting Swiftlint to work on Linux. And, you know, on, on Mac OS, we're super spoiled because uh, we, we tend to forget how good some of the tools are. Some of the tools aren't so great, but some of them, uh, and I'm thinking of instruments.app, are amazing. Um, I've had some great experiences uh, using instruments.app. And usually, like, if there's a performance hotspot in your app, you spin up instruments, you pick the right template, and you identify it, like, right away. Yeah, It's extremely visual. It's a great GUI. Uh, it's very accurate because of the instrumentation that's embedded in your source code. Um, you know, and I think this is one of the cases of, like, Apple owning the whole stack really makes it... Uh, it puts them in a unique position of being able to to provide such excellent tooling like instruments. Have you had good experiences with instruments and Swift code? Or um, yeah, I've had yeah. pretty good experience. I mean, it does what I'd expect it to do um, for the Swift, Swift specific stuff, right? So it'll demangle mm-hmm. all of your Swift symbols um, uh, when. You know, you have uh, debug symbols in your binary, uh, which if you're profiling, you usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, it'll be able to to symbolicate uh, where you are. Um, you know, I've mostly used the the CPU profiler mm-hmm. with instruments, uh, but that tends to be able to find you know things pretty accurately in Swift. Yeah, has your experience been different? Uh, I haven't used it that much in Swift, actually. Yeah. Um, I expected you to say that it was kind of slow, and I don't know LODB is like so brutally slow in Swift. So yeah, I, LODB is slow and also pretty brittle in Swift. Yeah. Um, and what I found with instruments is like a much more solid experience. Nice. Yeah. So uh, I've I have nothing but good things to say there. Um, but in any case, if you're writing some Swift code for Linux, um. You know, I think the common case there is that you'll be uh, either porting something that already works on Darwin, uh, especially for the next few years where the majority of Swift code is written for Apple platforms. And But even then, there are cases where uh, your Swift code might be slower on Linux than it is on macOS. And you, you might be surprised by this because, I mean, Linux is how the whole internet runs, right? right. Uh, when we think of the back end, there's a reason why when we say Swift on the server, we're not talking about Mac minis in Iraq somewhere. You know, we're, <laughs> we're probably talking about uh, something on AWS or some sort of cloud. Um, but there are all sorts of reasons why your Swift code might be slower on Linux. And when you think about it, uh, it these kinds of reasons really make sense uh, if you give it a bit of thought. Uh, the the first point is that uh, well, Swift is primarily used for Apple platforms, and so of course the majority of the engineering effort is going to go first to making sure that it's performant and uh, and and works well on those platforms. Right. Um, and so Linux is uh, supported by Swift, but the level of support is. I mean, I hesitate to use the word afterthought, um, but it is a second-class citizen still. Even if it's, you know, devil's advocate here, as high of a priority for Apple, there's just not as much at stake. There's not, not as many users. It's a much younger ecosystem as far as Swift is concerned. And so all these reasons means that you know, it's not battle-tested. It hasn't been battle-tested for as long as, as Swift on uh, Dar- Apple platforms has been. Anyway, so that's kind of a high-level take that you can look at it. 
But then there were technical reasons too. So there are platform differences, like very low level stuff about how the OS is implemented, uh, everything from like how interrupts work, uh, the whole architecture. There might be some low level library differences like mock ports and libpthread or how the allocator is built. And because, you know, even though macOS has the, the, the same Unix base, the things that, uh, that Swift calls into, um, those things might have different implementations per platform as well. Even if it's just kind of small uh, compiler checks here and there, um, you know, it might make a big difference. Uh, you might have different implementations of uh, your your own apps dependencies, and this might include Foundation. Right. Right. So Darwin Foundation, the one that ships with iOS, with macOS, is different than the open source um, CoreLibs Foundation that Apple provides, which is compatible with Linux which means that, uh, well, if there's some slow part of CoreLibs Foundation that isn't in Darwin Foundation, you might not hit that when you're running on macOS. You might only hit that on Linux. And then finally, one last thing that uh, that I can kind of lump into these categories is uh, the lack of the Objective-C runtime and related optimizations on Linux. So even when you have a hashtag pure Swift code base, mm-hmm. um, you're... Swift is still very much leveraging the Objective-C runtime for things like type inference. Um, it has uh, optimizations that, um, for example, in bridging, that might not be accessible to you if you're running uh, without the Objective-C runtime. And most of the time, that only happens on Linux. So all of these reasons means that your code that behaves super well on Darwin platforms might suddenly be slow when you try to run it on Linux. So one quick question about Darwin Foundation versus CoreLibs Foundation. Uh, is CoreLibs Foundation compatible with uh, macOS? Like, can you run CoreLibs Foundation on macOS somehow or, like, use it in any way? You can, um, but uh, it's not its primary use case. Right. Um, but a lot of people who develop CoreLibs Foundation do so using the Xcode project mm-hmm. uh, for CoreLibs Foundation. You can run the unit tests from there. Um, and so it does build and run and pass the tests on macOS. It's just that uh, why would you use it when you have Foundation, which is uh, right. completely implemented? You know, it doesn't have any of these NS unimplemented stubs. Right. Um, and of which there are still quite a few. There's right? still quite a few. Yeah. There's less and less um, over time, but there are things that rely on Objective C that just aren't implemented yeah. in CoreLibs Foundation. So a lot of the like dynamic uh, behavior of like NS Archiver yeah. uh, isn't implemented in CoreLibs Foundation. Right. So. Uh, if you ran CoreLibs Foundation on macOS, then let's say you found this place in your Linux code where CoreLibs Foundation specifically is slower than Darwin Foundation. Can you just run CoreLibs Foundation on macOS and and then like debug that and fix the the problem in CoreLibs Foundation? Yes. Okay. Uh, and this um comes down to my first suggestion. If you have a performance hotspot in your Linux Swift code, um, the best way to profile that on Linux is to not profile it on Linux at all. And it's to profile it on macOS and to try and see if you can kind of reproduce the performance bottleneck that you're experiencing on Linux 
on macOS where you have the fully fledged instruments.app at your disposal. You have Xcode and the um, most likely the uh, familiar development experience that you have there. So how do you go about linking against Core Libs Foundation instead? Well, that's just like you would do any Swift package manager Got it. Uh, project, right? Okay. You can pull it in. It has an Xcode project, so you, you know, same thing that you would do for any other Swift source. I see. Um, and so it, it could be for uh, for Corelibs Foundation versus Foundation, or it could be for whatever else is your is your bottleneck. So, like, say mm-hmm. you have a different uh, code path in your in your own app, in your own library that you're you're porting to Linux, you have a different code path for macOS versus for Linux. Well, if the Linux code path works on macOS, maybe just kind of temporarily uh, comment out your macOS branch there and actually just use the Linux branch on the macOS platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing things like that uh, is really the, the best way that I've found. Um, as long as you can reframe the problem to be able to test it on macOS, uh, Instruments.app will probably be a much better tool than what you can use on on Linux. That being said, there are times when you just can't do that. Right. Um, and so, for example, like even CoreLibs Foundation can have different implementations on macOS versus Linux, or it could be uh, any number of the other potential reasons why your Swift code is slower on Linux that I mentioned earlier. Um, of course, like I'm not really focusing here on on the cases in which your Swift code is faster on Linux. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's the case, well, good for you. You can stop listening to this podcast. <laughs> right. Um, and so unfortunately, there's no such thing as apt-get install instruments.app. Uh, you have to resort to uh, some other tools that are available. And um, I've researched a few of these um, there are three that really jump out. The first is Dtrace. Dtrace actually powers some of the instruments.app functionality. Yep. Um, it was originally written for the Solaris platform, um, but it was ported. That's my favorite platform. <laughs> right? Your favorite platform to run Swift code on. <laughs> yeah. uh, incidentally, it does not, it is not a supported platform for Swift. But um, so it was originally written for that platform, but it was ported to macOS, and it's a super powerful, very scriptable um, tool that you can use for reverse engineering, for profiling, to uh, try to figure out like what symbols is your executable uh, hitting. Yeah, I saw a talk on Dtrace once, and it was admittedly difficult to follow. Uh, it doesn't seem like the most user-friendly tool to me. It was super interesting, but after that talk, I was like, I'm just going to keep using instruments. <laughs> right, uh, which boils down to my previous comment. Of, <laughs> yeah. like, none of these tools that I'm going to present are, are nearly as user-friendly as instruments.app. Yeah. Nonetheless, it's extremely powerful. And in fact, you can build custom instruments templates using Dtrace scripts. Oh, so if you I have a very custom need... Um, to instrument a part of your app uh, where you can write a Dtrace script that can have, say, like more um, semantic understanding of how your app is run, then uh, that's that's another great thing that you can do. But unfortunately, if you're using Ubuntu or other flavors of Linux, you probably can't use it. There are forks of this, but I'm, I'm not going to get into details. Like, odds are you can't use this. And so... There are two other tools, and these ones uh, I've I've used firsthand, uh, both in Docker and on bare metal mm-hmm. Linux machines. 
the first one is Callgrind, which ships with Valgrind, which is basically this virtual machine that um, you can use to invoke another binary. And this is an arbitrary binary. Uh, it can be written in Swift, C++, or Go, or whatever you want. Um, and what Callgrind the way Callgrind works is very similar to Valgrind. Valgrind is mostly used to find like memory leaks and uh, kind of like address sanitizer. But Calgrind uh, is something that's kind of a related tool that ships with it, which um, runs as part of this lightweight virtual machine that uh, instead of all of the um, processor commands that uh, would be executed on bare metal, uh, they're executed as part of these like virtualized interfaces. And so it can do that. So instead of adding instrumentation to your code, you run your code in this VM type environment. And then instead of your code kind of having a call to like injecting a call uh, to like record this function hit, yeah, it would do that as part of like all the processor commands that it's re-implemented. I see. The downside to this is that it's extremely slow mm -hmm. because, uh, first of all, it's only um, it only supports running in uh, a single threaded environment. So, in in my case for SwiftLint, SwiftLint it's the best kind of environment. It's <laughs> the best kinds of threads are, are the single ones. Um, no, so for SwiftLint, it tries to make use of as many cores as possible to parallelize the linting, and so it wasn't a very accurate representation of, of what it was running, especially when you're doing performance profiling. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the whole point, is right. to identify, like, where it's spending its time. And so if it's not an accurate representation of that, it's not terribly helpful. But the advantage of it is that um, you can run it in a virtualized environment, um, which isn't the case for the next tool that, uh, that I'm going to bring up, which is called Perf Events. Mm -hmm. And Perf Events is a suite of tools available for Linux that relies on hardware performance counters. So it's this kind of subset of functionality in the kernel, in Linux kernels, that uh, basically taps into uh, counters provided by the hardware. Okay. And these are counters for things like, um, you know, where the processor is spending its time, mm -hmm. which is incidentally exactly what we want to find out here. Right. I should mention here How that convenient. overall, um, my goal here was to find um, a performance hotspot in SwiftLint um, because we had added this rule and it was taking like an order of magnitude longer than any of the other rules to run. Which rule was it? It was um, some opt-in rule. So like most users weren't affected by this unless they explicitly opted into to the stylistic rule. Mm -hmm. It was one to you know, separate to group your your let declarations and your var declarations and to separate them by single new lines. This is some like very yeah. arcane specific stylistic thing. Right. Which, you know, if that's how you want to organize your code base, you know, SwiftLint doesn't judge. It just tries to like enable you to do so. Right. But the way that it was implemented, uh, it was extremely expensive. And so um I tried using call grind and basically I I I got to the point where I found where uh, SwiftLint was spending the bulk of its time, but it was extremely low level. It was basically just surfacing that a ton of time was spent in libICU, and a ton of time was spent doing uh, Unicode collation algorithms. And so this what's, wasn't... What's libICU? libICU is the 
open source library that provides Unicode implementations okay. um, that most projects end up using. Uh, Swift ends up Swift uses this for a lot of its Unicode heavy lifting. I see. So it calls into this at runtime. It's probably Michael Ilsman's favorite library. It's everyone's favorite library. It's what get us our emojis. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, uh, all this tool is telling me is that I'm spending a lot of time doing uh, string processing. Yeah. And so this isn't a very useful uh, outcome, right? Telling me do less string processing isn't something that I can just dive in and, and fix, right? Uh, I need something higher level than this. And so this is where uh, I ended up resorting to the perf event set of tools, which meant, hey, let's spin up uh, a bare metal Linux instance mm -hmm. rather than just try to profile this locally um, in a VM or in a Docker instance. And so... I'll link to this in the show notes. There's uh, all sorts of resources for how to do this, how to uh, run the perf event tools, how to record the output, um, the execution of a program, how to visualize it. But I'm just going to glance all over that here and basically say that the, the end result that you can get to fairly quickly is um, something that's called a flame graph, which is this visual representation of... Um, where your program is spending its time, but instead of focusing on the lowest levels of the stack, like Colgrind did, it focused on the high levels, and then you could interactively drill down into this flame graph. So you open this SVG nice. uh, into your browser, and then you can click on I didn't know the SVGs were this interactive. It was really cool to see. You can click into uh, these call points of your program and then see how they break down into the things that they call into. And so looking at this, it was obvious exactly where the lint function was happening. And then within that, the breakdown of all of like the hundreds of rules that Swiftlet runs, including one that took like 30% of the space in this flame graph, which was this let var whitespace rule. And so I could click into this and drill down further. And then I found that uh, the most expensive part of it was, surprise, surprise, a regular expression. Uh, and so there was a very quick fix that you know, uh, is hyper-specific to the implementation of SwiftLint, but I could basically avoid this regex because this regex matched all the time. And so it right. was basically like performing a very expensive identity function. Mm -hmm. um, so I could just remove the identity and just say like, get me all the symbols of this kind of which the regex expression always matched. Right. So, you know, if I'm losing you in this explanation of where the bottleneck was, forget it. You know, that that's not what matters. What matters is that you could drill down to this SVG into this flame graph and I identify where the hotspot was. What matters is don't use regular expressions. <laughs> what matters is never do any Unicode correct string processing. Right. Yeah. Reminds me of the uh, XKCD comic, uh, 99 Problems. Uh, I had 99 problems and I used regular <laughs> expressions. Now I have 100 problems. <laughs> right. Um, so this was a super powerful tool, um, but... You, I mean, uh, this is really just scraping the surface of what the perf events set of tools can do. Uh, I had to do things like use the Swift demangle command in order to identify, like, what is the human readable um, uh, function that was that was being highlighted by this flame graph, and then I had to go uh, grep my source to find out where that was. Yep. But ultimately, um, this 
ended up being a super powerful tool um, that uh, if I didn't have access to instruments, if this issue was only happening on Linux, uh, at least now kind of have a rough idea of the tools that are available and the processes that you can tap into in order to um, identify those performance hotspots and fix them. Nice. So what did you use to run all these tools? It's called Perf Events. No, no, I mean like the hardware. Right. So I spun up a DigitalOcean instance. Okay. Um, which I'm pretty sure is not bare metal, but runs in um, a hypervisor that uh, virtualizes support for hardware performance counters. Okay. <laughs> which is a mouthful. Um <laughs> But basically, you can fake support for this, and and some hypervisors do that, and I think theirs uh, is does that. Okay. But if you were running on 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 an actual bare metal machine that you you know assembled from you know raw metal bits, yeah, um, you, you could do the same thing. Interesting. You just can't do this if you're running as part of like VMware Fusion or mm-hmm. uh, VirtualBox or Docker. Right. Uh, so I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes of like where you can learn more. I know very little about this stuff. Like I ended up finding a very small, narrow subset of what's available out there to get the job done. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I hope that I get to learn more about this over time because it seems extremely powerful. One last question for you regarding how this bug was found initially. Like, it was this all... Was this also slow on macOS? Presumably not, or? It was. So it this was. is kind of a bad example of saying like why you would go through the effort of profiling on Linux mm-hmm. uh, because it was slow both on macOS and on Linux. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to learn more about Swift profiling on Linux and I therefore see. I kind of pretended like it was a Linux only issue. Right. right. Uh, but now in any case, I have, you know, the, the tools and, you know, I, I have some idea of how I can monitor this in the future and the next time that it happens, well, I'm, I should be prepared for it. Yeah. Uh, but mostly I just, I found a lack of information here in the community. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I wanted to dive into and, and find a possible solution. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I said, really just scratching the surface here. Yeah. So it wasn't a user uh, report of this being slow or... Maybe, it, maybe it was worse. not, no. Uh, and one thing I should add is that um, the easiest thing beyond doing all of this as well is SwiftLint has um, a benchmark mode that is specific, nice. like has knowledge of the 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 internals of SwiftLint. So it knows that like, okay, well, what are some things to watch out for? Well, the time that's spent in each rule that's being linted is yeah. important to know. And the time that's spent in each file that's being linted is also important. So there's like a very small, I think it's probably like under 100 lines, but all it does is like date comparisons, right? Right. Uh, And it logs out to a file. But the nice thing about that is that it was extremely simple to add. And uh, it doesn't have all the noise that like even running an instruments does, where it'll just like monitor your whole application every single call that's being made where like really what you care about at the high level is what are the like large or like chunked buckets where I'm spending my time. And so even before you resort to, like if you find yourself 
uh, monitoring and profiling performance often, you might want to consider adding like a benchmark mode to your app so that you can do this even without all the debug symbols, which, you know, you're not really monitoring performance when you're you're profiling the debug version of your app, right? Right. So something to consider if you're finding yourself doing a lot of profiling of your app is maybe add you know, a very minimal benchmark mode to it. Maybe someone needs to write a Swift benchmark library that any framework can integrate. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, it's an opportunity, but this was really a very small amount of code. Like it's doing yeah. date comparisons and it's it's already very useful. So yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, maybe there's an opportunity there, but uh, also, you know, you don't feel like don't feel like you have to over-engineer this. Right, right. All right, looks like that's all we have for this episode. You can find the show on Twitter, Swift underscore Unwrapped. You can find me, Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me at SimJP. And uh, if you like listening to the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, uh, we have a chat group open at spectrum.chat slash specfm slash swift dash unwrapped. Thanks for listening.